Welcome to Cancri, a home of Canada's queer media. My name is Luke Smith. Uh, my name is Sebastian. And uh, we have a great show lined up for you this week. Um, later on, we will I be... hope we have a good show. Yeah, we always have a good show. We, we, well. do, our, we do our darndest. <laughs> so we have a great interview with the Executive Director of the Canadian Centre for Gender and Sexual Diversity, CCGSD. Mm-hmm. Um, and we had a great chat with Debbie about the submission they are making to the LGBTQ Secretariat, uh, who are working on an LGBTQ action plan. So... Cast your mind back, Seb, to when we had an interview with the Minister of Diversity and uh, Youth, Diversity, Youth and Inclusion, Inclusion and Youth. Uh, definitely diversity is one it was of like the things. a month ago, two months ago? Yeah, with uh, Minister Chagger. It was a pleasure chatting with uh, the minister. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things that Minister Chagger emphasized, and we sort of covered about as well, is they did a series sort of general public surveys, fine, but then they reached out to all of the LGBT organizations and said, look, you have great, you have better access to everyday LGBT people do than, you know, the federal government as an institution. So they've asked all of these organizations to reach out to their membership, learn what they can, and share the news back to them, the sort of observations back to them, because the federal government is planning to develop a sort of five to ten year action plan right. instead of uh, instead of being reactive to all of the needs of the LGBT community, they want a, a study of what all those needs are so that they can form a reasonable plan moving forward. Uh, and it's this is good because a lot of the problems that crop up. You, you talk to older folks in the community and they're like, I knew that would happen. I said it would happen six years ago. Do you remember we were at that meeting? I said, it's going to end like this and it's ending like this, just like I said it would. I don't know how many times I've been through this with something like, you know, with the blood ban, with the um, uh, the, the purge where, where people, they saw it coming down the pipes and they're like, nobody listened. And I think I think getting ahead of that, of being like, can we not have another I told you this 10 years ago situation with regards yeah. to the community and its relationship with the government. You know, it's evident that there are still many things left to address. We're not going to go mm. into too much detail right now because we discuss a lot of this a little later with uh, with Debbie. I was reading a great article that came out a few days ago um, on the CBC News. It was from the BC um, coverage. They interviewed Wyatt Maddox, who is an openly trans man uh, in uh, BC, who's trying to navigate access to healthcare there. So it was a really interesting article from the CBC about Wyatt's, um, you know, struggles to, to get appropriate care uh, mm-hmm. in, in BC, including a few years ago, um, a number of years ago, going into A&E to access PEP, which is post-exposure prophylaxis. That's, uh, we keep talking about PrEP, which is pre-exposure. Um, yeah. And essentially PEP is a medication that if you think there's been a, a recent uh, potential exposure to HIV, PEP is sort of a, a nip it in the bud kind of medication um, yeah. that is that is vital to the battle against HIV uh, spreading. 
It's not great though. Uh, it, it shares in common with plan B, the sense that it, it fixes the problem by just hitting you with you a, a big poison bomb that just makes your body a hostile environment to infection. Yeah. It's not, it's not great, but it's better than getting an infection. I mean, the concern is that the doctors at the time had no idea what he was talking about. So yeah, yeah there is, there's lots of education work that needs to go on. And yeah, mm. it was really interesting article about the gaps in BC. Um, at the end of the day, you know, a friend of mine was recently, I think, it, I don't know if it was you or somebody else who was talking about having a condition that took forever to be diagnosed. Actually, I think it was a friend of mine in the UK. It could and have been me as well. It could have been you. But, you know, being an advocate for your own health is really important. And it's a position that LGBT folks find themselves in more often than maybe we should. Because mm. there are some specific things to being gay and, and you know, men that have sex with men and even more so trans folks. Well, even beyond that, for reasons no one can explain, gastrointestinal disorders and autoimmune disorders are very common among gay men. And this is including teenagers, by the way. This is like before becoming sexually active. So this is not necessarily, of course, there's something wrong with your GI tract when you're doing what gay men do. It's like, no, no, no. This is like 16-year-olds getting mm. Crohn's disease and stuff like that. It's just uncommonly, it's above average. I'm currently blind in my right eye due to an autoimmune disorder. It'll yeah, pass. So, yeah, By the end of the day, I'll probably be fine. But like, I, I am very familiar about the link between these things. And it's not I mean, just about, you know, and how the listeners don't think that we're just two old gay guys in their sixties <laughs> complaining about, Oh, I'm partially blind today, but it'll be, it'll be okay. By dinner time, it'll be fine. It's when just, I was 21, know... I was diagnosed with something that usually is only diagnosed to 60 year old women. So, I mean, like, it's just part of my life having all these and when I was 20 years old, I was diagnosed as a 60-year-old woman. So, I mean, there was, uh, <laughs> and you're wearing the cardigan to prove I it. I am too. wearing uh, a matching cardigan. So, yes, yeah. thank you for that. All right. Uh, our listeners can't see my beautiful cardigan. So we're going to just move along. Now, I am a, I mean, to, to buck the trend of me appearing too old, I am a avid TikTok user, mm -hmm. um, do lots of creeping, not too much creating just yet. Some of my favorite creators are Canadian, first and foremost, amazing okay. talent, mm -hmm. couple that we'll be reaching out to to see if we can get some interviews in the coming future. But some of the things that I've been seeing is uh, short videos taken at Edmonton's Pride Corner. Okay. So it wasn't initially called a Pride Corner. This is just a random corner in uh, uh, White Avenue. And uh, there is uh, certain, certain street preachers there in Edmonton who have very strong opinions mm -hmm. um, that they feel compelled to share loudly with other people in the street who are trying to go about their business. Um, and these preachers who are determined to let everyone know what they think have been at this corner for, for a while now. Mm -hmm. um, they don't hold necessarily the most inviting opinions. That's a nice that. way of saying. I'm going to say, yeah, I'm going to say these hate preachers weren't particularly inviting. I think I, uh, I'm less likely to get sued with, uh, with that wording. But anyway, <laughs> all of this is to come up that, you know, a couple of months ago, the NDP MLA, member of the Legislative Assembly for Alberta, encouraged uh, her followers to go and visit the corner. Locally in the queer community in Edmonton, going to the Pride Corner and counter-protesting these hate preachers. 
is uh, what people do in Edmonton now for the weekend. That's their plan. You know, are you going to the cottage? Are you going to the beach? No, no, no. I'm going to counter protest at uh, at Pride Corner. The reason why I'm bringing this up because I mean this is just you know an interesting example of you know the freedom to protest and counter protest yeah. and you yeah, know, all yeah. of that jazz. So what's really interesting now is that there is a growing petition to have the the business improvement area for where they are, as well as the city, now officially recognize it as Pride Connor. I don't know. Some of these people can be entertaining. I remember my brother used to get up at like 6 a.m. on Sundays so that he could watch the televangelists. My mom was convert, uh, concerned that my brother was converting or something. And it took a while to figure out because he was really young at the time. But he finally admitted that he he didn't think it was real. He thought it was a joke. And he was enter- <laughs> he thought it was a satire. He thought it was like a satirical version of an actual performance. And being told that, no, no, these people really do think that way. That didn't change his opinion on anything. It's like, well, it's just they're accidentally a satire now. They're mm-hmm. kind of satirizing. And he still got up early and watched, laughed at like Jimmy Stewart and all these folks. They are kind of funny in small doses. It's kind of like watching Alex Jones having one of his freakouts where it's entertaining. And then you think this guy has an impact on society. And then you think, I wonder how many millions of his viewers are thinking the same way that I do, that they're just laughing at him. But turned out it's a high number. But yeah, I would probably go to this street preacher corner in Edmonton. But yeah. bring popcorn. Bring popcorn. I bring would bring candy. popcorn too. Absolutely. Yeah. A nice yeah. coffee. Yeah, exactly. And I would get, you know, you know what I would get? I would get those cards with numbers on them, like tens down to zero. Mm-hmm. And if someone does a particularly entertaining chant, I'd lift up an eight or a seven. You should, just, you should organize you know, it like Rocky Horror or The Room. Where like whenever they say certain thing, you throw plastic spoons or toast or something. Yeah, interactive theater. I love it. (laughs) I love it. All right. Well, we are going to jump to our first track, uh, which is Rolling On by Incendiary Suite. And uh, then we have our interview with Debbie about their submission to the LGBTQ action plan. All right. But that's us for now. This is Rolling On by Incendiary Suite.
welcome back to Cancria, home of Canada's Queer Media. My name is Luke Smith. And I'm Sebastian. And I am... Um, we are very excited to have uh, lined up for our next segment, the executive director of CCGSD, the Canadian Centre for Gender and Sexual Diversity, I believe it is, uh, Debbie Awusu Achia. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Now, Debbie, we met many moons ago. I think you were at the GSA, uh, the, the grad students at Carlton. And uh, it's, you know, how have you found it? moving into this role as the ED of a national LGBTQ2SA plus organization? Yeah, it's been an interesting move. I often like to say that the student movement, I think, prepared me for the worst that comes with nonprofits. Um, but I've been gracious and, and, and thankful enough to have um, a bit of buffer room having worked at the federal government before just role and also at a national NGO, Oxfam Canada, which gave me all the like technical skills that have made, I guess, my transition into this particular role a lot easier. Um, learned how well-functioning organizations work and how adults, real adults, how they get along and how they work together in nonprofits. And so that has been something I brought along with me. And so it's been an interesting transition, but I'm glad that I'm prepared or prepared as much as I could be to be in this role. It's actually, uh, I sat on the Grad Students Association when I was at Carleton. And I do remember there was once a 20 minute long heated debate and eventually I put my name on the speakers list and when it was my turn, I just put up my hand and said, I'd like to point out that everyone in this room is agreeing. And then that turned into a discussion of everyone was agreeing. They're just using different words for the exact same goal. And that was a, that was a learning experience. <laughs> Yeah, that's a that's a common pitfall of the nonprofit scene. Yep, exactly. Just <laughs> community folks agreeing on the same goal, just how we get there being worded very, very differently. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> now we've been we've been following the CCGSD, the Canadian Center for Gender and Sexual Diversity, for a while. But what I think has been really quite uh, interesting and pivots into the topic of today's conversation is that CCGSD has really taken a typically a proactive role in the sort of politic of the queer identity in Canada. Now you're headquartered in Ottawa, um, you know, and there's been a there's been a history of engaging with politicians uh, over the course of a number of years. But most recently, I think in the Ontana, we've really seen that sort of organized effort to bring the, a queer voice to the politicians and, and making sure that yourselves are heard. It's, am, I, am I seeing into things? Am I reading between the lines? Or is that really what's, what's been a focus? It really is. And it makes me really happy to know that people are paying attention and actually seeing that shift. Um, I tend not to be the person who wants to say, it's because of me. I came in and this thing changed. But if I can toot my own horn, I will say that that is attributed to myself, my approach to advocacy, and a lot of the lessons I learned, both being someone who worked in campaigns for a feminist organization, as well as someone who worked in policy at the federal level. And so being able to bridge the two, and on top of that, that community activism voice, all, I guess all three, has um, given me the opportunity to allow the organization to be a little bit more creative and bold in our approach to advocacy and proactive. Um, as someone who is a community member who has 
I guess, witness CCGSD's work prior to joining, um, I noticed that the proactive element of the work wasn't where it should be. And so coming to the organization with that advocacy background of mine and being like, this is where I see an organization, the only national organization working on 2SLGBTQ communities here in Ottawa, we need to be more bold. And not only speaking like in a singular voice for the first time, CCGSD is being invited in other community of practice tables. So we are working with other national 2SLGBTQ organizations. So the messaging is similar. And if you've been seeing, possibly there's been a lot of collaborative efforts in our advocacy too, and that is not a coincidence. You know, what really jumps out at me is, uh, Seb, you, you can be a, a, a touch disparaging. I think you refer to it as standing outside and saying things that rhyme. Um, and, and, and that approach to activism. But, and, and I get that. And I think that there is a role to play in media pressure, public pressure. Oh, yeah, there's However, a place. Yeah. I want to I stress that in my work with the National Community Radio Association, we're a federally regulated industry and we work directly with the, with the federal government and agencies. And I can tell you now, you know, living and working in Ottawa, people love briefs. They love summarized documents. They mm -hmm. love, you know, a, a policy submission process. And then somebody summarizes those. And then a summary of summary of summary of that goes to the minister. And, and that's where the decisions are made. You know, it's, it's really what works its way through the bureaucracy. So I find it quite entertaining that there's this whole report and a push to your newsletter about a submission to bureaucrats. Because that's 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 really where we've we've landed here. You know, is that? You know, what are your thoughts? Am I am I maybe a, a touch flippant here, or am I on, maybe on the right track? I think you're on the right track. You just explained advocacy in Ottawa to a T. And like mm. honestly, again, of having been in the inside and on the outside, you kind of explained all of it. It's very much so briefs, but it's understanding what do people who make decisions, how do they best like to receive that information and then make decisions based on that information. And I think sometimes if it works, it works. Um, now that's the information getting to the people who make decisions. Does that mean that that information actually is going to mean anything? That's a whole other conversation. And that's where public pressure, possible civil disobedience, scaring your local politician to making a decision. That's where that side of the conversation comes in. But in terms of getting that information to the right hands, we know what works, especially in this city and the briefs are your, your go-to thing. Now, Sebastian, you read through the report, as did I, and, and I, Debbie, I believe, had a hand in writing it. But was there anything that jumped out to you when you were reviewing the report uh, into their submission to the LGBTQ Secretariat? I mean, I'll say two things. The first one is uh, this whole document minus the cover page, the thank you page, the table of contents is about five pages. It's really nice and summarized. It is something for politicians who kind of want to care, but are too busy. So it's like the, the way that this document was written is very nice and succinct. Uh, and otherwise, the number one actually, the, the number one thing that jumped out at me when I was looking at the justice and legal reform, all of these recommendations for the things that you want to push are things that have been on the floor before, but the government's really just dragging their heels. So it's not so much we want you to do the following, it's rather you're already doing the following and we want you to pick up the damn pace. Absolutely. <laughs> um, I think the one that stands out the most, and I think a lot of 
queer and trans people across the country have been talking about, especially those who are paying attention, is the bill on the conversion therapy, which um, if I can be blunt in my assessment of it, in the delay from the Liberal Party in particular, but also mm -hmm. I'll say other parties played a particular, all a role in this. So this is not a partisan issue. It's a government politics issue in wanting to delay it to be the pride gift to the queers. We are mm -hmm. exactly where we are right now. Um, and so I want to give complete shout out to advocacy groups like No Conversion. Um, they've been doing phenomenal in trying to kind of pick up the pace and speak to senators to be like enough with your cottage vacation. It's time to talk about these important things because we don't know what's going to happen in a couple of weeks when a writ is dropped and we have a new election and like we can assume based off polling, but sometimes elections can totally throw a wrench at you. And like, what does that mean? Does this die? So yes, absolutely. It's, we know that these things are already on the floor, but it's like, please pick it up but then also stop trying to do these like things where there's a theatrics behind it because you really want to get a queer or rainbow vote. If you really cared about this, this probably would have been approved months ago. Mm. It does leave a bit of a sour taste in the mouth. And if, if you want to hear a critical review of this, you should tune into our episode a few weeks ago where we had nothing polite to say about any of the political parties. Um, the <laughs> fact that over half or maybe around half of conservative MPs voted against what the World Health Organization has deemed torture is abhorrent. Like it is, it is inexcusable. But the fact that the liberals kept it to the 11th hour, mm -hmm. also pretty inexcusable. I also was, I was, I chuckled myself that you've included the uh, the blood ban, which is currently the liberal government, uh, the, the government of the, the liberal party is fighting a court case uh, against, you know, defending Health Canada for for accepting this ban from the Canadian Blood Services in Hema uh, Quebec. So I, I was just to really pick up on the point that Sebastian was saying here that yeah. you've asked for a few things here, which the Liberals promised yeah, yeah, and yeah. have completely failed to deliver on. But let's not put all the the blame in the red uh, red camp here. Conservatives have been actively fighting against this. Uh, from day one, which is, I think, ridiculous. So I mean, I mean you could also say the the NDP are kind of sitting on their thumbs as well. They well, could be saying like, "Hey, didn't we say we were going to do this thing?" I do think that the MB NDP and you know the Greens have broadly been they've supported all of these moves, hmm. um, but really they've used what influence they have, and I think I'll leave that. I'll leave that there. <laughs> <laughs> So there, there was a couple of things that jumped out at me. Um, for example, a change to the Human Rights Act to include intersex status and working towards uh, combating ongoing discrimination. We actually reached out to Intersex Canada. Actually, a good friend of my Olim, uh, is uh, is involved with that. Um, but they're, they're still in their sort of nascent stage of, of organizing amongst themselves. Is this something that grew through a partnership with them or organically from the folks that you surveyed? How did that get onto the agenda essentially? Yeah, so this actually got onto the agenda based off the survey. 
So in the survey that we conducted to the broad public that we asked um, like-minded organizations to share, but then also people who are part of our supporter base, um, one of the things that came up from a, a legal justice reform perspective was intersex rights. And so that informed that decision, but we further did some research looking at, into some of the work that EGAL is doing. And very recently, uh, they just um, announced some work that they're doing on advocacy with regards to intersex rights. And so we were able to kind of capture information there to be like this is something of importance but definitely it was informed by the public um in particular sex intersex folks who are like this is something as an individual who's impacted by this that i'd like to see we we don't generally i mean it, it is uh i think there was one study that put it about one in ten thousand people uh are considered intersex which is still when with 33 million people is is a pretty substantial volume of canadians who who are impacted by this. Um, but we don't often see it covered too much. I know that, for example, in Australia last week or the week before, um, they've now moved to stop doing surgeries on babies, uh, sort of sex corrective surgeries, because they got them wrong. Like, you know, their, their best guess isn't always a good guess. And really nobody should be guessing when it comes to, to, uh, to, to, you know, major surgery. So I think it's it's interesting to see how that conversation has arisen. So just, I, I feel like we may have slightly missed uh, in the introduction, um, although we did mention at the start of the show, note to self to do that, um, that this submission goes to the LGBTQ Secretariat, and they're really looking to identify the priorities. What we had a we had an interview with Minister Chaga, the Minister of Adversity and Youth, and you know, the minister really said to us because we really questioned the minister in terms of, is this a one-off funding? Is this a one-off? Is this just a a splash to to bring in the votes, or is there an ongoing commitment? And it was this outreach that they pointed us to that their, their consultations, inviting organizations like CG, CCGSD to, to submit um, is a part of that. So my question to you is, are you, are you taking them at face value? Do you think that this submission is going to maybe lead to some uh, an ongoing commitment of dollars or um, is this possibly just another flash in the pan? So I recently did an IG Live with our friends at the Enchante Network. And this was actually something that came up in terms of things that I saw in other examples of action plans like this that Canada should be replicating um, that really speaks to the needs of our community. So it's not just a one-time, one-off thing um, for the benefit of politicians and not the community as a whole. For me, the way that this could be substantial to our community if this is a multi-year action plan that we actually see across departments. That is also something that can survive change in government. If, that does, if that's not the case, all of the effort that's been put into this is a waste of time. Um, and I will be the first person to say it, do not care like what people say, I will say that in communities of the community tables. Um, this has to exist, it has to be comprehensive. And I think a, a, a very recent example that we can point to is the one that the, the, the territory of Yukon did. They just released their own action plan on to LGBTQ inclusion. And it is multi-year. It talks about it being a living document. Well, sorry, Ireland. So if we look at a national example, Ireland talks about it being a, a living document, but with the Yukon, it looks at it being multi-year. 
for me, it has to be something that if there is a change of government, they can't just be like, ooh, sorry, new, new priorities. We need to, I don't know, make sure there's no deficits. We know who talks about that type, who uses that type of rhetoric. And that's it for me. But otherwise, like I have, what's the word? I would like to hope that the intentions of what the current folks in power are doing and those who are engaged in this process at the federal level have the best interests of mine. I think another indication of it is the fact that the secretariat is there. It's one reason why we amplified the message of our friends from Enchante Network for permanent funding for the secretariat because that was the only way that we felt engagement with our communities would continue to be there. And an action plan allows us to hold the government accountable. If there's benchmarks, we can point to the fact that you, you said this, yet we're two years down the line and you're not even halfway to meeting this goal. What's going on? And then there hopefully is a, an ongoing entity that will allow our voices to be heard. And then again, that feedback to be considered and how it's being implemented. So long-winded response to be like, Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. Yeah. <laughs> Fingers crossed. Trying to trying to say it in the in the best way possible that um, we have a responsibility to holding the government accountable. This is a tool that can make that happen, but there are other things that need to be put in place. Hopefully, those things happen. The the one thing that jumps out to me, and and then I will hand it over to Seb, who I think is uh, sitting on a question there. But the thing that jumps to me that does give me an ounce of confidence is. Although it wasn't really a change in, in government, but there have been multiple terms where the LGBTQ Secretariat has existed. It really started off with uh, Randy Boissonneau becoming the first cabinet level secretary specifically for the LGBT community. And I do believe that reading the tea leaves a little bit, a lot of that came out of the court case with the civil service and D&D around the purge. A lot of uh, legal pressure to take it seriously and, and push some things forward there. But what's really interesting is that even the, you know, in, this, in the second term of the Liberal government, the Secretariat continued to exist, but became more of a bureaucratic arm. You know, it's sort of nestled in Canadian heritage, I think is where it lives. Um, and it's run by bureaucrats, quite senior bureaucrats have been, you know, been in other departments for a long time. And, you know, my my confidence, even though, you know, Charles Baga is, is fantastic and a very good politician, I think, um, my confidence as a whole in politicians is so-so. But for me, if there is a department, departments are very hard to get rid of. So there's, mm. there's a sticking power to bureaucrats. So I, I, I have my optimums. I, I place my, uh, my faith in inertia is really what I'm going for here, which isn't a great bar to, to set, but I, I did want to kind of point to that level of, of cautious optimism. What about you, Sebastian? Do you think that this report will help influence decisions and uh, hopefully the next round of, uh, of government? I mean, reports like this always end up to more questions. So I've seen reports such as this, or actually just reports in general, submitted to the government, and quite often they don't necessarily take the, gov uh, the report as is. They like to do their own thing with it. Um, but nine times out of ten, they just come up with the same conclusions anyway. So, I mean, it's, it's a bureaucratic nightmare, but it is what it is. So, I mean, for sure, there, there's a lot of stuff in here that, are easy wins. Uh, things like, as I said, have been on the floor before, like the uh, ending the blood ban. Um, th there's a few things in here. Like uh, years ago, we were working with Jens. No, what was his name? Dutch guy. 
that we used to work with. Jan. Jan, yeah. And uh, he was trying to look at uh, changing the criminal status of sex workers in Canada. And he was saying that, you know, there's there's a few different ways of doing it. And people are debating what they're going to get behind, that there's different kinds of policies and different ways of decriminalization or legalization that, that, you know, a lot of that is just debating about the details, but doing something about the legal status of sex workers. Like a lot of this, I could see leading to further discussion. And ultimately, a lot of this are things that I've seen being discussed before, if not in government, then by different branches of government. So having the support of the community saying like, yes, we like what you're doing um, is very, very useful and very important. And documents like this cannot be underestimated for their influence. So, I mean, I'm very excited. I'm also hypnotized by this color palette. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I, what, I, what I would like to It's mention, lavender and cyan. I never would have put the two together. I don't, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm, it's I'm your corporate. It's the corporate colors <laughs> of, uh, of the logo for CCGSD. Yes, our comms person got really creative with that color combination. Yeah, well done. I don't know why I'm I'm focused on that. I, I'm sorry. I'm just hypnotized by it. I, uh, I wanted to mention that what, there's a couple of things that jumped out at me. I found it, it, it. I was not startled, but but somewhat surprised that you have a demographic breakdown of your survey. It was about 280 odd that participated, but only 46% identified as 2S LGBTQ+, which makes me think the majority of them weren't queer identified. Um, and and that surprised me. I, you know, mm. did did the who filled out your survey surprise you? Um, I would say no, and that become that's a result of some of the work that CCGSD has done in the past and what we currently do in engaging allies and or I like to call them like adult um, supporters or advocates of two LGBTQ youth. Um, and so with those people being most likely to be on our our serve our our listserv, they're going to read this, um, the parents of, of queer and trans youth too, and based off those conversations they're having with their children who might not be engaged in filling out a survey, they might do so. And so that mm -hmm. um, kind of probably reflects that number. And so not completely shocking, um, but it's good to know that people even outside of the community who are tapped into our issues, the conversations we're having are engaged and also would like to have some feedback to the federal government from their perspective. It just looks like it's a more pan-Canadian, pan you know, the language they like to hear. Like it's a mm -hmm. Canadian issue um, as opposed to just only this pocket of people. Yes, but everyone else wants to see the success of this action plan. Therefore, they're providing feedback on where things should go. I think that's great. I, I Honestly, I hadn't thought of the, the caregivers, the parents, guardians, um, and, and allies, all of whom I think want to path forward. The other thing that jumped out at me was it is clear from this document that and, and from our conversation that you were very political illiterate, political literate. You, you know what's happening and you know the constitutional division of powers, uh, for example, which puts health squarely in the provinces, education squarely in the provinces. Um, but these are two areas that you spotlighted in the report. And which kind of makes me wonder how much and how far do you think a federal action plan can go in areas of provincial jurisdiction? That's a good question. So I am a big advocate of telling politicians in nice words that even across jurisdictions, they need to get along 
for the betterment of community members. Even the legal side crosses jurisdiction. Um, this wasn't reflected in the action plan, but some of the work and advocacy we've been doing on trans inclusion includes like municipal related governments reacting to what's happening and to create safer cities. It's a legal issue that goes from municipal, like from municipal to federal. Um, but if we're going to make safer cities, all governments need to get along. Um, when it comes to education, without a national strategy that's based on guidelines that already exist at the national level, if that does not happen with provinces getting along with the federal government, we're not going to see those changes because those excuses can be like, oh, it's that jurisdiction, it's not our, our, our lane, etc. I think COVID-19 was a prime example of the confusion of jurisdiction language. And I think the underlying message there um, for me is for politicians to step it up a little and work collaboratively, work like my existence as a queer woman doesn't stop with your restrictions. I experience all of these issues across governments. So what are you going to do to ensure that there's coordination? You probably should. Here's an example of how you can do it. So that kind of explains that, especially when we're talking about um, a comprehensive sex ed strategy, we could see the federal government playing a role in this. And our friends at Action Canada have been pushing this for years. This is something that we wanted to amplify. We can totally see the the government, the national government doing something and informing how it would be implemented at the provincial level. So I just yeah, want to see some brilliant. coordination. <laughs> that's a brilliant response. And it reminds me of a few years ago, we were looking into a case, I can't remember what it was, but I remember the Ontario Human Rights Court referring to a knowledge base developed at another province and a legal precedent set at the federal level, which didn't necessarily apply to the provincial human rights court but you're right you're absolutely right that you know in, in practice there is a lot of this sort of cross-government conversation and use of knowledge and uh, following the lead that happens and uh, I don't know of any other uh, any anybody else quite as enthusiastic about a federal education plan as Sebastian who for our regular listeners brings it up at least once every 20-30 days um, so yeah, that and this, trains that, that and trains, you bring up trains a lot as well. Uh, but yeah, is there anything in this report that you want us to spotlight before we wrap up uh, this particular interview? Yeah, I think the one thing to spotlight is it's, it's not necessarily the content. I think it's what this report in itself means for the organization in its newest iteration. Uh, CCGSD is at a point right now where we know that we need to respond to community needs, not imagine, like imagined needs. And as a result mm -hmm. of that, doing something like a survey is not only showing that that's where we're moving towards, but it's actually us taking that and implementing it into something that is pretty big, like a submission at this level where the government is watching what CCGSD is doing and saying on these things. Um, not only is this going to be used to inform the action plan, but we're actually using those four to five key areas to inform our advocacy we're going forward. And so you're going to see that language come up in our campaigns, in our programming, and it's because we're looking at what the community wants and implementing it. So there will be needs assessments on those areas. Um, like I said, new iteration of CCGSD is one that's informed by the community we serve and not by individuals who think they know what the community needs. And it's that dialogue that I um, really think is important. And I think it doesn't make sense otherwise not to do. 
And so if there is anything outside of the content in that report that people should take away is that we want to hear what you would like to see as a community member and what a national organization working on 2 LGBTQ issues. For me, I'm five minutes away from Parliament Hill and I use that as a, as a joke. We are here and working with other national organizations to ensure that there's changes happening and that it's coordinated. So let's talk. We're going to make sure that those those communication channels are opening are open. We're going to try to have more surveys like this and even through projects, et cetera, research, et cetera. And so we're hoping people will join the, the ride. And a final comment is we're thankful for the people who responded to that survey. Um, you folks made it happen. So yeah, that's what I would add. Well, I want to definitely really express my gratitude for you joining us uh, today and, and also producing a beautiful and very well written and structured uh, report. Um, I feel like our listeners, we spend a lot of time gushing over like reports and documents. I don't know if that's maybe we should have just a podcast where we talk about documents, but no, it's <laughs> it was great. And the content, most importantly, was uh, was fantastic. So I want to thank you again. Um, we'll be back just after this next song. Thank you.
Hello and welcome back to Can Queer, home of Canada's queer media. My name is Luke Smith. I am Sebastian. That was How Many Days by The Ruffled Feathers. They remind me of Sixpence None the Richer. Oh dear. And their track Kiss Me. Uh-huh. But it's, it's, yeah, I got solid Sixpence None the Richer vibes. But uh-huh. I only know that one song from them. And I feel like they might hate that. <laughs> They're pro- well, it's sort of like... Uh, uh- uh, Chumbawamba has 40 year dis- discography of doing weird experimental music and they're known for their one pop song. Tub thumping. Yeah. 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 <laughs> you get your whiskey drink. You could drink. No, I'm, I'm not going to, not going to dive into that. Now, one in, in one of the stories I forgot to give an update on is um, a rural Manitoba LGBT group mm. has um, come out swinging against Conservative Deputy Leader Candice Bergen. Now, Candice Bergen uh, voted against Bill C-6, which would have outlawed conversion therapy in Canada. She claims that some of the wording isn't exactly what uh, she thinks it should have been, that it could have possibly maybe uh, penalized private conversations between uh, parents and uh, and children. Mm-hmm. Now, the Liberal government and the Liberal Party who proposed the bill have significantly refuted this position from uh, Candice Bergen, essentially saying that is not what the bill does, mm-hmm. and uh, it was a misinterpretation. Now, the uh, Pembina Valley Pride organization isn't thrilled. They said that their local MP, Uh, Candice Bergen, if she got these words through, then it would have taken all of the teeth out of the bill and would have left conversion therapy banned only in name, um, but not uh, not in practice. I mean, I think we've talked about this before, but I don't understand why they don't just ban the techniques associated with it, because then that covers a whole bunch of stuff. It also covers brainwashing and it covers like uh, uh, torture under uh, police, um, not investigation, police interview sort of scenario like a whole bunch of stuff in that stuff should just be illegal in general anyway and then you you got your bases covered and then you just have somebody saying words at you and then you can get up and leave the room if you want uh because we've already got kidnapping laws so they can't keep you there if you don't want to be there so i mean i don't know i i yeah it gets tricky (laughs) when you know are you being kidnapped if you're at sunday school you know what I mean? It, it's this. It, it's a good question. Yeah. Um, but yeah. So this uh, um, Candice uh, Bergen is one of sixty-two federal conservatives that voted against Bill C six, which would have banned conversion therapy. And uh, Candice Bergen is feeling heat as a result of it, as I imagine yeah. many of those sixty-two conservative MPs would as well. Yeah. Um, We've critiqued the Liberals before, and oh, yeah. earlier in our conversation with Debbie, we also... We've also spoken uh, in support of the general concept, maybe not in this case, but the general concept of, I love what this is trying to do, but I hate the wording. Because we've gone over policies before, word by word, where we're like, I love what this is trying to do, but we've found loop- potential loopholes. I mean, I get that. Like, I support the spirit of that kind of critique. Although maybe in this case, I don't know what her critiques are in particular. I would have to look them up because as I said, I can't read today, unfortunately. <laughs> so I wanted to go over, we, we don't have too much time for the international news because we're running a little shy. Mm. I did want to mention just just this, this headline. We did read into it. 
But uh, there is a group called a group of uh, activists in Poland who have created the Atlas of Hate. It's essentially oh, yes. it's a map. Yeah. And what they've done is if there is a municipality that have declared themselves free of the homosexuals, mm-hmm. then these activists have declared that they go on the map. Okay, yeah. <laughs> they go on the map of hate. Well, apparently these municipalities who have declared themselves free of homosexuals um, don't quite like being mapped out uh-huh. so that people can avoid them. Honest to God, they are not fans of being publicly mapped. Okay. And, and having their anti-gay, uh, you know, um, city-level motions tracked and made public and, you know, click and read, readable. Yeah. So and they're suing them. Because their solution to this is not to stop being homophobic, but to sue the people who are telling them where you're being homophobic. So that's that's their solution. And you are saying before we started recording that the, the map is like green, amber, and red. And I honestly think the only people who should be offended are those in the amber region, because (laughs) if you're if you're green, you should be like, hell, yeah, we're green. And if you're red, you're like, yeah, that's on purpose. The only people who are who should be like upset about the rating should be the amber people who are like, no, 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 that's we meant to be something else. Like so. There are a lot of red regions. I've just I've just sent Sebastian the link. Okay. And these are places where they have passed or enacted some kind of no say gay law. Mm-hmm. The green is the regions where someone has proposed this and they, they have collectively said, no, we're not interested in your anti-gay motions. Mm-hmm. The amber area is where there is people advocating for it and they just haven't voted on it or the motion hasn't come to table or, you know, essentially there's some, there's some, you know, agitating in favor of the anti-gay motions in the amber areas. Okay. So, yeah, it's a nice map. I like the map. It's a good looking map, but I just thought it was hilarious that their solution to, uh, to being called out for being homophobic is to sue somebody who made a map. So they're currently is a nice map. Yep, the uh, the All Out group is currently trying to raise funds to tackle the lawsuits from the municipalities. You can find them at allout.lgbt uh, forward slash Poland TTO will get you to the map and the Atlas of Hate um, from, from them. Now, there is an activity that I want us to address, uh, and I think we've got enough time for it. Um, and that is the fact that you may have seen people dropping in their Tinder location as being in the Olympic Village. Mm. Now, um, Grinder also allows you to do the similar, you know, initiative where you can, and I quote here, explore, yes, quote, um, another another region, location, whatever it is. Well, a lot of apps do that. The, the yeah. idea behind it is that if you're going to travel to that region, you can have things lined up for when you get there. That That's how it was originally pitched when it was introduced on a lot of these apps. Um, but people use it for all sorts of reasons. Really. So it's, essentially, it changes your, your GPS coordinates in, in the app yeah. to being in a different location. So then yep. you see people who are close to this new sort of fictional location that you're at. Yep. Yep. Now, some people have been dropping themselves into the Olympic village to try and win themselves an Olympic husband um, or an Olympian wife. 
Oh, yes. Uh, or whatever the case may be. And don't get me wrong. I did have a conversation with my partner, Jake. And I'm like, uh-huh. if I land myself an Olympic diver, I, it's, it's, I'm not, it's something, you know, things are possible. Things happen. This happened. Mm-hmm. I could be the new Dustin Lance Black. That's all I'm saying. Okay. That could be, that could be me. But uh, the reason why this is so cringe, I mean, first of all, it's sort of cringy and hilarious. But some folks have been making TikToks out of exposing these LGBT athletes. Now, according to Outsports, there are um, at least 179 LGBT athletes at the Tokyo Games mm-hmm. um, compared to 56 in 2016 right. and 23 in 2012. So it is a, a, a shocking number of athletes who are now out and since um out sports actually started to track this a couple of months ago they have had somewhere close to 100 people contacting them and Mm -hmm. being like hey so me and these three other women on my soccer team are all lesbians and we're with you know the whichever national sport Um, right and they've all just been like being like hey no we're publicly out this is who we are yeah so yeah. i don't know this is the 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 gayest olympics ever and uh this is what people are doing them they're they're, they're, they're outing them and uh putting athletes who may be in countries where it's not as accepting uh at risk i mean this is not something that we talk about on air too often but you know as a public service announcement we do acknowledge that there are LGBT folks who are also human garbage that like, this is not a cool thing to do. And, uh, you know, I'm not going to unequivocally defend all queer people based on the fact that they're queer, especially if they're doing something like this, this is not cool. So that's, yeah, no, it is, it is deplorable. You know, I, I am, I am also easily entertained. I thought it might be, you know, cool and cute to see who is in the Olympic village, mm. but the, the, that next piece, the next bit of the story about making a TikTok and, and potentially outing them, that's a, yeah. that's a bridge too far for me and my taste. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We are going to reach out to Larissa Franklin and uh, Joey Lai, who are both on the softball team for Team Canada, who won a bronze medal. Both of them are also openly uh, openly gay. I believe they're both lesbians. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're going to try and get them confirmed for our next uh, interview. So crossing all of the fingers for that to happen. But um, at this point, we have run out of time. We'll be playing out with uh, Le Dauphin et Le Princesse by Lush. Uh-huh. And, uh, yeah, I have been Luke Smith. And I've been Sebastian. And thank you for listening. Un dauphin échoué dans une baignoire C'est noyé Histoire